Welcome to Niggas Eatin', a tastefully offensive podcast with your hosts, Tammy and Rory. What's up, Rory? How you doing? I'm fine, I guess. A little bit worse <laughs> for wear and tear. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm, yourself. I'm doing okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, a little dehydrated, trying to drink mm-hmm. more water these days. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But that's neither here nor there. Yeah, I started stretching. Oh, you did? Yeah. Okay, how's that going? It's it's going. What do you do? Like a like a left foot, right foot, like a left foot up, right foot slide. Like you doing the Drake Tootsie dance? To oh no, stretch. Okay. No, just arm I'm trying stretches to get. And... I mean, between you and me, I'm trying to get my feet behind my head. If you know what I mean. Oh. You trying to? I'm trying to be prepared to for ego. when for when quarantine is over. You're trying to bend over to the front and touch your toes. Mm. You about to get slutty? Is that? Oh, is well, this, I mean, we have been slutty, but I haven't. The wall falls, and you're like, "Yeah, I'm getting slutty." My walls are strong, baby. <laughs> like I'm chlorophyll. About social distancing. Oh, falls. like chlorophyll. <laughs> strong walls. Is that? A, what does that mean? Plants. Plants. The cellular structure. Oh, I thought you said chloroform. Welcome to Eaten, a podcast oh. about plants. I was oh. like, Whoa. yeah, that was dark. I was like, no. what? Oof. Okay, Thanks. no, I'm sorry. That was, yeah. So you're just... you stretching. You feeling yeah. good? Mm-hmm. Okay. And you're... So can you do the split yet? Uh, no. Well, can you put your hands up on your hip? When I dip, you dip, we dip? <laughs> yeah, I can, actually. I love that song. Yeah, it's a great song. I have no idea who does that song. Does anybody know? I know somebody interpolated it. Interpolated. What? He No, he just wanted to say interpolated. <laughs> he literally was just what? like, interpolated. Why are you looking at me? That's what Jarrell just did. <laughs> He's like, I said that out loud. <laughs> so you be stretching. I'm doing a little working out, but mostly sitting and eating popcorn too late. I'm working out and drinking whiskey. Oh, and Freak beer. Nasty. Freak Nasty does do that song? Yeah. Look at that. Well, we solved the uh, dip crisis. Right. Let's solve the what the fuck is this episode about crisis. This episode is action movies. Specifically, from the mid-90s to the first decade of the millennium. Right. Um, the aughts. Yeah. The aughts. The aughts. Formerly known as the aughts. Yeah. So this episode is particularly about what? Um, how technology, economics, um, world history and events have shaped, um, a change in, in action movies. Events? What type, what type of events? Is there any event you can think of? Well, I mean, several that we'll get into later. Okay. Yeah. I'm, I'm, yeah, I don't know. I don't know how to set up a joke for like, this episode is brought to you by Raytheon and Halliburton. (laughs) Because it's funny because as we'll get into in the episode, uh, Military, military contracts, the uh, intelligence community are all over Hollywood action movies. Man. Oh, yeah. They get embedded. They got in them government guts. Mm, Wait, Hollywood guts. Yeah. Deep, deep, deep. Yeah, deep inside. Yeah. Deep, deep up inside. So, since we're going to start around 95 in terms of talking about movies, I feel like we should talk a little bit about the early 90s. Great. And how um, society, like movies, obviously, like as with all art, kind of are about either in a literal sense or in a metaphoric sense 
the the context and the culture in which they come out of. So at this time, you know, the Berlin Wall has already fallen. Mm-hmm. The Gulf War has happened. Mm-hmm. The Soviet Union has fallen. Um, we've had the basement bombing in the in the World Trade Centers at this point. The Unabomber had his last string of, of bombings and was caught in 95. So we have the rise of domestic um, terrorism. The Oklahoma City bombing happened in 95, you know. Mm. Um, the 96 Olympic the, um, attack. Yeah, in, in Atlanta. Um, and uh, so we have, the, we have the fall of our greatest enemy in the Soviet Union. We have the... the not that there haven't been domestic terror attacks before in the past, but like there, it becomes um, homegrown terror becomes like a very big thing in in the '90s. Later on, we'll start to see mass shootings, uh, like with Columbine, um, and good old President William Clinton. Uh, I, I did not have sexual relations with that woman. Indeed, I did have sexual relations with that woman. <laughs> Correction, America. I'd just like to say I did have sex with that woman. I'm very sorry. Um, uh, he signs into law the Telecommunications Act of 1996, which allows for cross-media um, buying. So that's why you have like um, GM owning everything. Pontiac. Right. They already owned it. But, but like, yeah. right. They, what do they own actually? In terms of media? General Motors? Yeah. Well, they don't who, own anything. What's the... What's the talking gen- about General Electric. General Electric, that's yeah, what it is. You know, because yeah. when you sell stoves and dishwashers, you gotta obviously sell, the next natural step is to... Radios, movies, television. And, right. You know, um, so the, the media conglomerate um, and the collapse of uh, news media into entertainment media, you know, is exacerbated and it lays the groundwork for that. So that's really important and we'll get to that mm. later. So but, that's like Murdoch buying all those different news outlets, um, yeah. like paper and or right. print and yeah. then uh, television news mm-hmm. outlets to create. Yeah. And specifically in GE's case, the ultimate self-aware show, 30 Rock, about the incorporation of corporations into right. public. That's what happened. Yeah. yeah. Um, Enron is going to happen in, um, I think, oh, 01. One. Mm-hmm. And uh, obviously, Y2K scare is wow. is um, what a happening in in uh, the mid-90s, actually, and going into, you know, hysteria in 99, in the late, in late 99. It's like what Prince said. Yeah. Party like it's 1999. Mm-hmm. He was a groomer. He was. Yep. So... Um, what do you want to talk about first? Um, yeah, that's a tough one. Uh, I just want to talk about a particular movie okay. from 1995. Mm. Bad um, boys, bad boys, what you gonna do? Is that is that right? That's the movie. Yep. Got yeah, that's won. the movie. The God in one. <laughs> that's the movie. Uh, bad boys. Bazinga. The <laughs> um the ultimate epic. The classic action film, action vehicle for. Martin Lawrence and Will Smith, directed by Michael Bay and produced by Jerry Bruckheimer, I believe. Mm-hmm. Jerry Bruckheimer. And that movie is its something else, Rory. <laughs> but in particular, just to cut to the chase, yeah, because you were going to ask some question. Oh, no, I was going to say, since you're talking about police, um, the Rodney King happened. Right. And then this movie comes out. Right. So. So... 
the movie Bad Boys paints a really wonderful picture of how cool it would be to be a police officer, a detective that gets to go undercover and get the bad guys in Miami. And the bad guys being, obviously, drug dealers who don't give a shit about, you know, uh, people's livelihoods or anything. And that movie is a really cool two-hour just trailer. and For the uh, police. For the police. Yeah, yeah for the police. Um, and that's due in part to, you know, Michael Bay's aesthetic, which he was just working out. It was his first film, wasn't it? Um, yeah, it's his yeah. first feature film, but he had started and been had been doing video work for Playboy, which mm-hmm. is where he cut his teeth, mm-hmm. and I think was developing his aesthetic. And that this is the first time. So much. This is the first time he could, you know, have a shot to push a big story on the big screen. And um, I'm forgetting the writer's name, but they crafted a story which I probably some other draft. Could it, you could have easily seen Bruce Willis and somebody else or so Sylvester it's like Stallone. So it's like a 90s Shaft, where Shaft was written for a white character, and but they changed it because of black exploitation. Yeah, like that. But what it boils down to is the movie, um, you know, is a buddy cop film, mm-hmm. but it really just praises police culture, and it's very bizarre. What do you um, mean by police culture? Uh, police culture, you know, you you always uh, protect your own, you know? Mm-hmm. Like the bad guy is an absolute bad guy and there's no reason to think about their dimensionality in the world. Okay, the world. so like if we overstep our boundaries, we're all mom, we're all in this together. Yeah. If we the police step, yeah. overstep our boundaries. When, okay. when, when you don't follow the rules as a cop, yeah. you're doing good police work because it's for some sort of greater good. So even though you have two really cool black entertainers pretending to be cops in this movie. Um, really, the film is just uh, propagating, you know, police mm-hmm. culture. And it's funny because, like you said earlier, Rory, it came out in a time when the Rodney King beatings uh, beating happened and you had, this is after the L.A. riots mm-hmm. and after all this racially charged stuff, you had to do the right thing in 89. Yeah. Talking about how, you know, Fuck the police. Right. Fuck the yeah. police because the police and the whole you know government system doesn't care about black people. Mm-hmm. And yet you have these two black cops who are cool and hip saying, oh, we can just, you know, right. run up on some Haitians and shoot out their car or, you know, do mm-hmm. whatever. Um, Even though this falls out of our timeline, it sounds like um, the aftermath of. I guess the rise of propaganda, specifically Brooklyn Nine Nine, and now with Angela Bassett, and I think it's Nine One One. Yeah, like after Ferguson mm-hmm. and after all of the Black Lives Matter stuff. Yeah, all of a sudden these really, really pro cop and diverse cop right shows mm-hmm. start popping up. Actually, right. I have a question about that because, like, as you're talking, I'm thinking of all the times I've seen. There's always that one scene where there's like that punk kid who then gets like roughed up by the one cop who's like, you think I don't know what it's like in the streets? I've been in the streets, you Mm -hmm. stupid kid. You got to get your act together. Mm -hmm. And I fucking hate that scene every time. No matter what show, they always have to have it. Well, yeah, you know, because police are supposed to instill Mm -hmm. some sort of morals and values to the youth if they can, right? Right. Supposed to. Yeah. Um, So, yeah, this movie's a big action trailer and it supports uh blue lives you know yeah. it's the blue lives matter anthem from 95 yeah um, so i think the other thing in terms of like aesthetics with bad boys is how michael bay is developing because he has a significant role in how action films are made today 
um, and the kind of like, I guess not the, but an action aesthetic um, where he's, he's a very kinetic director Mm -hmm. as well. And so um, there's a lot of, he builds in a lot of like what's, what's called like parallax into his, thing into his movies and his scenes where like there'll be like this huge stationary thing that when things are whipping by whether it's the camera whipping or like a car or somebody running or whatever you see the scale and you see like the speed comparatively to this big stationary thing Mm -hmm. um and he builds in a lot of like i know there's the scene um where they're driving away from like the the dock and the cruise ship is going in the back the car is coming towards camera then there's a big cruise ship in the back going out of port laterally, horizontally. Mm-hmm. And so like he he's very much, you know, trying to build in as much movement as possible as mm-hmm. as a form of keeping the eye kind of entertained. Yeah, that's his one film from from ninety five. But ninety five was a stacked year for action. You have Die Hard with a Vengeance, you have Goldeneye, which we're gonna get into. Mm-hmm. Um specifically, there was Judge Dredd, Mortal Kombat, Batman Forever, wow. um Heat, Michael Mann's Heat, which we Man. might touch on briefly. Um Ghost in the Shell, Braveheart came out that year. Uh so it was a very stacked year. Hackers came out. It was a very, very stacked year for action and, and diverse. Hackers. And a diverse. Yeah. Right, it's diverse. Angelina like, Jolie yeah. in that movie. And no. Matthew, Matthew Lillard. Lillard. Scooby Doo. Shaggy. And then the two Asian twin guys. Man. Oh. So yeah. the, the, the It's a diverse yeah. So a lot of one of the points that we're gonna keep making is that in the nineties, um a lot of action film was like really diverse mm-hmm. in terms of like you have the subject matter not like in terms of genre because action is kind of like this this all-encompassing it's yeah. not even really a genre it's, it's a like, catch-all right because you can have in fantasy you can even have action in, in dramas honestly yeah that's you know? what he is right so um so there's action all different types of action and the way that people go about action um is really different mm-hmm. in terms of like how much special effects how much practical effects in terms of how you shoot it mm-hmm. in terms of how you cut it the the sound mixing and everything right. the budget for it to even allow what you'd want to do right yeah. and and how you how you approach how you approach it like we talked about michael bay which is uh, who is very kinetic about it mm-hmm. and as he moves on in his career it becomes more like um intensified continuity is what it's called um which is that really you know a one cut every like two seconds right. if that you know right. um but like somebody like uh michael mann who's very methodical and thought out and and very procedural about his violence and about his action where it's like you have a survey of the land before you know the action happens you see have these long languid you know kind of takes and mm-hmm. then um it's it's a it's aestheticized in a way where um it's it's more compositional, even though there's movement. It's not it's not about necessarily um, the movement in the way that Michael Bay's right. is. You know, like Michael Bay seems to be. They call it Bayham, where it's all chaotic and mm. you know, like if somebody is gonna run in a Michael Bay movie, yeah, it's gonna look. It's gonna be in a Dutch yeah. angle in right. slow motion, and there's gonna be ten right. different angles of yeah. that movement. Whereas Michael Mann. Val Kilmer's running down the street and he's shooting his, you know, M16. It's he, and um, that's it. There's, even though Michael Mann is is like this, he's this weird combination of like, quote unquote, realism and like very, very like, um, uh, very well curated and and meticulous, like, 
um, aesthetics, mm. right? No, I mean, realism is obviously an aesthetic, um, but like the he's known for his like really cool muted tones and colors and very like neon-y and his wide angles and, and things mm. like that. So and then you have somebody like John Woo. Oh yeah. Who's like, Hey, yeah, this is going to be fucking gonna fun. Turn that shit to 11. Like dog. Yeah. Reality. Yeah. Fuck reality. <laughs> this movie's about to be good. Yeah. And John Woo has a whole string of, of American movies in, in the nineties, mm-hmm. which is where we're kind of like, holding ourselves to like obviously hollywood mm-hmm. so mostly broken American arrow movies. face off mm-hmm. mission impossible 2 mission impossible 2 all very different yeah he's different in himself but it's also like because he comes from like the the hong kong action scene with like mm. hard boiled and, and and stuff like that chinese fat yeah um it's it's really interesting how like popular you know he was in, in the 90s yeah whereas like i don't think we have an equivalency of that after 9-11 Right. Um, so there are a couple of um, franchises, even though they had reboots in the aughts, um, that kind of bridge and show the changes that we're going to be, that I guess we are talking about. Um, one of those being the James Bond series. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In uh, 1995, the first James Bond of the 90s was released. It was called Goldeneye, directed by Martin Campbell, starring Pierce Brosnan. And his first role as Bond? Yep. His first role as Bond. Uh, New Bond of four i think he did four films yeah so with this one um it's not necessarily looking forward into the decade as to kind of recapping the fears of of the past decade because the the bad guy the antagonist in this is a rogue Mm -hmm. russian general who's trying to um who's trying to acquire a new weapon um, a stand-in for a nuclear bomb. It's like an EMP, though, right? It's like the Death Star. <laughs> okay, it's a it's a it's a laser. It's a la- it's a laser fire in the lasers. Yeah, yeah. But um, so it's a new super weapon right. that could give you unlimited power if you you know to whoever unlimited wields it. Unlimited power. And James Bond is tasked to. Stop the bad guy. So this film, it's more of looking back at previous antagonists or the biggest antagonist to the Western world, which is Russia and... Well, the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union, Um, right. But I think um, the big thing about Bond and why Bond is relevant to this conversation is because Bond is, as a series, it's very on par with where action is at any given time like if you look in the 60s it's very on par with the 60s action it's not doing it's not innovating it's not doing anything new or interesting it's just kind of there and so like we still have you know everything is on a set you know it follows the classic rules of action where you have um typically within the same frame you have the hit the reaction the hit, the impact, and the reaction. Mm. And that's kind of like what classic action is is doing. Um, and we'll get into how that changes. And the chase scene. After 9-11. Well, I mean, it's it's the way that you do the chase scene. You know, so it's like... The fucking tank. So, <laughs> that, that was boss. Yeah, that was boss amazing. Was you know? <laughs> I was going to say the way you talked about it, like how it adapts to the times, that suddenly, like it was like in the 2000s, the odds. We're getting there. Daniel yeah, we're, Craig yeah. was doing... We're getting there. We're going chronological. We're going chronological. I'm so sorry. Yeah, no, no, you're good. Um, you're good. As chronologically as I can. Um, but yeah, so it's it's very much on par. And so like if, if you're watching a Bond film, y- you can kind of summarize 
you know, um, where action is, which is why when you get to like, um, in the, uh, after nine 11, after the new millennium, you have like dying of the day, which is Pierce Brosnan's last one. It's a CG fest, you know, yeah. it's, he's wind. I don't even know if it's windsurfing, but he's like, I think he's on a CG wave and he's, it's just, it's just bad, you know? Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, there's even map paintings in, in GoldenEye, which was, was still a thing before a lot of like, oh, yeah. you know, computers and digital technology and, and, and things like that were beginning to develop. So, yeah, um, that's enough about Bond. Cool. So what's your movie? The next relevant series is Mission Impossible. In 1996, um, Brian De Palma with Tom Cruise um, does, you know, he's kind of like a burned spy you know i think that's you know you get your burn notice yeah Yeah. um and he it's really interesting in terms of um what we're talking about with like um homegrown domestic terror um because now the enemy is coming from within whereas it used to be like external with like these are the soviets or these are the nazis or these are the you know the indians or these are the whoever you know right um, a lot of, especially in action in this era and definitely after 9-11, um, they're about like the, uh, homegrown kind of, you know, American gone bad type of thing. And that's what, um, mm, not Sean Connery, Angelina Jolie's father, John Voight, John Voight. That's, that's kind of what his role is, is, is as like the, you know, the, good spy gone bad type right. of type of thing but it's interesting also because um it, it was it doesn't look like any action film from the 90s like it, it isn't really following the trends of the action films of the 90s because it's brian de palma and he's pulling from like alfred hitchcock movies and he's pulling from like you know you have the 70s zooms and the the anamorphic close-ups of like you know all the little gadgets and shit Mm -hmm. and like the some some not a lot but some of the the 70s zooms and shit like that so he's like in the 40s and 50s and the 70s right and it has such a weird and 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 unique texture and it feels very much like an old movie you know i mean obviously it it is but like in the 90s you know watching because i saw it but i didn't know none of this shit about movies but like i'm assuming for like people who have grown up you know watching hitchcock and watching you know they would they would immediately recognize that you know mm-hmm. um so it's it, it's it's not necessarily innovative but it's definitely unique yeah. and we were talking about um john woo and how he got his hands on mission impossible in in 2000 um mission impossible 2 excuse me in 2000 um and that's a completely, it's a completely, it's not even a 180. It's like not even on the same field as Mission Impossible 1. Right. Because it's very much like action Hong Kong, you know, John Woo style. But. Um, Dancing with the cars. Right. You know. Yeah. And he has like, there's some amazing transitions, like right after the um, opening credit scene, you know, which is another opportunity to plug the you know it's um they're in spain and then these flamenco dancers are like dancing across the screen and it's a transition and Mm -hmm. um as tandy newton is trying like she's a thief and she's like sneaking about the house but her footsteps are timed to the flamenco dancers like stomping it is i mean that's some dope fucking shit you know um but we'll get into this a little bit later with um 
J.J. Abrams' Mission Impossible when we get into the 2000s, but um, that's when it becomes sort of like commercialized and it loses kind of its like unique identities. It finds its own identity as a franchise because there's nothing comparing, you know, De Palma's and, and John Woo's films, but in terms of style, but J.J. Abrams kind of sets the tone for the rest of the Mission Impossible mm-hmm. movies. So it's interesting how diverse it was in the nine well i guess the mid 90s to the when it came out in the new millennium even it was probably shot in in 98 99 but um and then how it becomes kind of flattened by corporate kind of media ownership thanks to you know the telecommunications bill of 96 where like everything is kind of flattened the next big franchise this is actually just a side oh okay also in 96 uh was a little tiny disaster film called Independence Day. Timmy's it, favorite film. It my literally my favorite film. The star the the star vehicle for Will Smith to like ascend to, you know, solo action hero. Yeah. Well, I bring it up for a couple of reasons. One, that's Roland Emmerich's debut doing um big big disaster film. That was his he he's made movies before though. But he became known as like the guy to do the biggest disasters movies because mm-hmm. you know he did 2012, he did the uh the day after tomorrow. Uh He did the Stonewall documentary which was a disaster in itself. <laughs> just to stay on point. So Independence Day in terms of different flavors of action, that's a disaster world disaster movie and I tie it to what you were talking about with um Mission Impossible where mm-hmm. this isn't an internal enemy right it's not the enemy from within it's an otherworldly extraterrestrial enemy immigrants it's it's immigrants but it galvanizes the entire world right it's called independence day because it's still mostly patriotic and in terms of melding um melding the marriage between um the military operations with Hollywood mm-hmm. and the depictions of them in films. Uh, that's one of the first films I remember where it's like very evident that the military had a hand in it. Will yeah. Smith's character is a Marine who, who he's a Marine, but he's in the air force and he wants to join NASA and keeps getting denied. <laughs> um, but, Oof. but you know, that movie, I wanted to fly a fucking F-16 right. and, you know, and, and all that stuff. So seeing the fighter jets um, fighting the, you know, alien ships, seeing all these big um, set pieces of all these different countries, you know, New York, L.A., London, D.C., getting blown the fuck up by these mm-hmm. aliens. It set this presence for, oh, there's there's a potential for massive total destruction um, on a bigger scale that we've seen. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just wanted to bring that up. Yeah, and I think um, it's very good because that's a consistency in in America, especially after 9-11, is how more involved the military and the intelligence agencies become. Um, because, I mean, it's very clear. And there are a couple of books that we'll list at the end that kind of detail how involved um, the military and the intelligence agencies can be in terms of having um, final control uh, over the the final draft of the script Mm -hmm. and final edit. Yeah. Um, But it's interesting how even um, a year later with Starship Troopers by Paul Verhoeven, Mm. which is about aliens invading us in a preliminary strike and then us going to decimate them right which obviously has um 
World War II, well, Pearl Harbor. Pearl, Pearl Harbor, 9-11. Right. Right. Um, echoes of those that um, it's an anti-war film. It's supposed to show you how the, the ruling class, the capitalist class, the political class use nationalism and, and things like that to uh, use, you know, the patriotism of young people to basically be cannon fodder in, in their war to for, you know, domination imperialism and domination and, and shit like that. Yeah. But I remember, even though that movie was rated R, you know, back then they wasn't checking nobody's fucking ID or nothing. And like a lot of the friends that I had, you know, growing up, myself included, went to go see that. And we would play the military on the playground. Yeah. But it's supposed to be an anti-war film. Right. But... But it, it looks cool. That but it looks cool because it has the, the guns. And there's like this weird thing with um, anti-war films, specifically in America, where like there's we live in a culture that's so enthralled with um, violence and we can't make violent movies or action movies without that kind of sexiness, that yeah. allure of that. It's ultimately rendered useless, you right. know, um, and that's something that we'll get into um, in the 2000s, especially with anti war films in the 2000s but you know i think there's one final franchise and one final film that we have to talk about yeah. in the 90s so do you want to take it away yeah uh it's the matrix 1999 the wachowski siblings um i know kung fu that it w wasn't their first movie but it was the movie that you know that changed the game that it, cha it changed even though blade did it kind of first blade did it first We'll, we'll honorable mention it after. Yeah. Well, just really quick. Blade, first Marvel property to be on yep. screen. Black man. Black excellence. Black Wesley vampire, Snipes. Wesley Snipes. Oh, yeah. You know, the blueprint. So the now blueprint. Lathan's in there for a minute. Yeah. Um, Chris Christopherson. And uh, you had cool. Folk singer. Cool underground, you know, vampire the rave, culture. Yeah. The bullet timey. The right. Um, so the Matrix. Yeah codified everything from uh, 80s anime, action movies, sci-fi literature, like, you know, uh, Gibson, William Gibson and Neuromancer and all that stuff, you know, punk Philip K. Dick. And right, punk, punk aesthetic, yeah. Philip K. Goth, Dick, all, all that shit. Wusha. Wusha, right, into a philosophical action right. extravaganza with the cherry on top, you know, bullet time, a new technical, you know, technical operation in a film that elevated it to such a way that, yeah. you know, it it influenced every film, every action film and every video game afterwards, mm -hmm. whether it was in the action genre or not. Yeah. Even um, very philosophical with like Baudrillard and simulation and simulacra, you have the allegory of Plato's cave mm -hmm. going on in there. Mm -hmm. um, but I think in terms of relating to the 90s, it is very much a lot of Y2K kind of like... The fear. You're, right. So there's the fear of um, that the, the computer technology taking over our lives and fucking all, us over, you know. It's Good all thing about, that didn't happen. It's all about, well, the, the machines in the Matrix, you know, 
are harvesting us are harvesting us for energy where it's like we're serving them and that's a lot of like the boomer kind of language about like phones and things like that where it's just like right. you know the that phones 5G aren't servicing us corona, right? open up your third we're eye. servicing them um a lot of kind of like i mean in in 1999 you have in seattle um the battle of seattle which is the anti-world trade organization protests going on there's however strong you want to call it there's an anti-capitalist kind of um stance in the matrix um so it's coming out at a very um opportune time Mm -hmm. as well Um, which was slightly just also slightly overshadowed uh the matrix came out in april 1999 and it was slightly overshadowed by the antithesis <laughs> of it, a Star Wars so episode Phantom. one, The Phantom Menace. <laughs> so almost thirty days later, you had this juggernaut that had the entire machinery of Hollywood, Taco Bell, BMW commercial, right, right. Like every tie-in imaginable yeah. was pushed into all stage. So even it, so, if you were of age to see The Matrix, you might you pick gonna, up on some of the philosophy. Right. But you're probably also going to see Star, Star this Wars. This is pod racing, and you're going to remember Star Wars because it's being blasted everywhere right Right. yeah so there's a very funny irony about that how about those two films are closing out the millennium and the point right adding uh star wars into the conversation is its contribution to technology which it was the first feature film to be shot on digital camera system Mm -hmm. it was like a sony viper or something or other um a lot of integration of blue screen and green screen right and Um, that was further and that furthered, you know, digital technology in filmmaking. Mm-hmm. Except with, for Yoda. I'm with sorry. The, with the sequels. Right. Yeah. With the sequels of those ones in the yeah. 2000s. Jim Henson wanted Yoda to still be a puppet. So he was in episode one. And yep. then, you know, he was bouncing around in episode two. And he was like, Ooh. But um, I think the other thing that um, The Matrix animates is there was... So you have the ending of the millennium, right? Our greatest enemy has fallen. Um, you have a lot of culture wars going on in terms of anti-war movements, in terms of feminist movement. Um, the Obviously, you're rounding out the AIDS epidemic of the 1980s that, you know, kind of lasted into the, into the mid-90s. Um, some gay uh, activists are pivoting to marriage equality because of the AIDS epidemic uh, where people couldn't see their um, partner, their partner, um, the family who disowned the person can see their partner, but you know, um, hence the importance of marriage. But um, so you see in the late nineties, a lot of um, aimless kind of passive um, men, male protagonists specifically who in some ways are um, androgynous or somehow kind of queer there's like a weird energy going on with like um gender presentation and like the weakness and and compromised masculinity so you see that in like fight club mm-hmm. um i think is the most famous one but you also see that uh obviously in, in in neo as well right he's not in control of his life he wants control of his life he's seeking those answers um which i think is the narrative that gets red pilled the kind of redditor kind of alt-right metaphor that they took from the matrix um i think that's where that it that's their reading of it is you know this loss of masculinity and things like that um and neo is very androgynous 
at the end of the movie, he looks exactly like Trinity. Trinity is the action hero, you know? Because when, right before he does bullet time, he's like, I need help, Trinity. Like, I don't know what the fuck to do, you know? So, um, I think that is, um, that's important to talk about as well in terms of like the end of the action here. It's like an ending of the frontier in a sense. Right. Right. History has ended because we, because Y2K is about to happen, but we also defeated the big evil communists. Right. So, so now, what's what, our purpose what now? Right. right. And now gays and women are trying to get rights and oh, right. can't have that. A con- what a concept. Right. So now we move into 2000. Now we move into 2000. Which is a weird space. I, yeah. I feel like you wanted to talk about this real quick, though, with Charlie's Angels. I, I love Charlie's Angels. And um, so I love Charlie's Angels growing up. You know, I love my girl Lucy Lou and my girl Drew, Cameron D and Destiny, Charlie's Angels. Come on. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, uh. Um, I love Lucy Lou. <laughs> but um, like love it's very clearly um influenced by the matrix you know a lot of wuxia a lot of bullet time things like that but it's very campy and i feel like not a lot of action films are able to be campy anymore and i don't want to say that charlie's angels is the last campy um and film but it's it's fun in like an unabashed way and excuse me it's fun in an unabashed way. Like it's literally you playing on the playground doing stupid shit, you know? Mm-hmm. A lot of the action films after 9-11 um, are very like, it's like Wrinkle in Time, if you've read that book, where like at 4 p.m. the girls skip rope and they skip rope at the same rhythm. The boys bounce the ball and they bounce the ball at the same rhythm. They're having fun, but it's like manufactured fun. It's like uh, supervised fun. You know, it's not, it's not from the heart, you know, it's not from the imagination. Um, a little bit, I shouldn't even say a little bit, a lot of bit orientalist. So, you know, points off, uh, but, um, overlooking that very serious issue, it's like, I mean, it's so stupid. It's stupid in a a fun way, you know? Yeah. Well, I brought that up because it seems like that might have been the culmination of a lot of different um, action movies in the late 90s where they were stupid Mm -hmm. and fun or just fun or just Just stupid. stupid. Yeah. Right? Or just action and too serious. A little bit too serious, yeah. Right. Whereas it kind of tapped into not taking yourself too seriously, having fun with right. the content, but still delivering yeah. on the action part. Mm-hmm. And it has great action sequences. Right. When um, Drew Barrymore is like, uh, I'm tied to a chair, but like, you're going to help me out of this chair. I'm going to triple flip over you and kick him in the chest. And then I'm going to moonwalk out of this room. And it's and then great, did. great fucking. Yeah. yeah. So it seems like... Um, it was an unintentional ending point because you know it takes like two yeah. years to two years to make right. to make movies from you yeah. know, shooting and development and, and everything from finishing and, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. and releasing. Uh, so two thousand, you know, summer two thousand, you have kind of these last remnants or these films that kind of have gone above and beyond its predecessors. Right. Mummy, right? The mummy with Blade. Series. Mummy is essentially Blade. Even um, the even it's more of a racing movie, but there's enough action. Even the Fast and the Furious. Yeah. 
Then we have... Oh, I was going to finish off oh, um, with Charlie's Angels. I think the, the major point about Charlie's Angels is that even though it's an action comedy, it has really sharp tonal shifts. Like when... Um, mm, who, who? Crispin Glover? No. Um, Sam, Sam Rockwell. Rockwell. When Sam Rockwell... Um, we think that Sam Rockwell had has killed Drew Barrymore. Like it's a it's a very sharp turn, and I don't. And I think after that, after nine eleven, um, we don't have as dis, as sharp and as hard kind of um, tonal shifts. Everything seems to be kind of flat, you know. Which is why I say like even when you have like a fun action comedy film, and after nine eleven, it's not really fun because you don't have those sharp tonal shifts like even when crispin glover kills um who we think is the bad guy mm. um or the, at least the, the head of the bad guy, like that was unexpected like mm. i i the audience gasped because like we were having fun right yeah. like cameron diaz is on soul train and then this guy gets his throat cut in a, right. in a bath like the fuck is going on here right, right you know right. and it, it's good it earns it you know um when we get into marvel we'll we'll talk about how marvel doesn't earn its tonal shifts but something happened after 2000 Around the time of September, around the time of the 11th day of September. Right. September 11th, the World Trade Center, uh, the World Trade Center buildings were... Pentagon. Um, were hit by planes and they collapsed and it was a... Inside job. Yeah. You know, watch Loose Change on YouTube. <laughs> Loose Change on YouTube, 2007 documentary. It'll open your third eye. But... You know, 9-11 was an event that happened and, you know, we're both of the age where it, it, we have a very vivid memory of it. Yeah. Um, and it was impressed upon us and seeing those violent images repeated yeah. over and over for months and months and uh, waking to the war drumbeat stirring. Six weeks later. You know, in um, Afghanistan, in Afghanistan yeah. and then a year later in Iraq. and 2003. And et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah. so we were maturing through a time where there was a huge shift into kind of this like unfettered patriotism and nationalism and xenophobia against Muslims, yeah. brown people, yeah. you know, and 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 a pretty much I a remember unbridled support of you know the supreme leader, yeah. right. I remember, like, I was homeschooled at that time, and so, like, I wasn't even, like, at the school with all the kids talking shit, and I remember even still going to a friend's house of, like, my mom's, like, church friend who also had a kid who was homeschooled, and they're forcing us to hang out, and, like, me and this kid are hanging out, he starts playing Call of Duty, and, like, even just playing Call of Duty sent two, like, 11-year-old kids who have no idea what the fuck we're talking about when it comes to any of this shit into just this heated debate and like i remember us throwing out all sorts of things about terrorists that we had no idea but we were just watching we were watching movies and ever i remember like vividly all we could reference back and forth to each other was like the movies that we'd seen terrorists and right all about. right and they mostly looked a lot different than the movie version <laughs> yeah. gone are your gary oldman hijacking right. the uh air force one yeah um but that event you know we it, yeah it, it changed us, changed the country, changed the world, et cetera, et cetera. Um, well, specifically and, when you're kind of talking about the, the it's gone to the old days of those. I remember thinking and being like, oh, and the way it was presented to us in the news, 
that's terrorism as we know it, like the diehard type stuff. But that's like right. thought out. That's thought out white man terrorism. That is like planned. You know, there's a motive behind it. But I remember being presented with like Muslim Islam terrorism was just like this crazy fanatic. These are chaos, dark people. Well, it's right. like Super Saiyan. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. So. And since and to bring up that point, since they're not white, it's an easier way to one identify what right. identify or group together people by right. you know um this, their skin color or their religious practice and this has nothing to do with america being involved in various middle eastern countries since the 1950s right not at all not kinda, at all we kind of leaned over that right point. and um, it took what like another not a whole decade but even five years to really have any counterpoint to this kind of unbridled um, oh i remember it was you, know, you couldn't say anything about like did america deserve this right it was that they just hate us it had nothing to do with anything that we've done it was always like they hate freedom right like you because i mean i can't remember like specifics but i was just like you know um i remember a lot of like in terms of like i guess leftist not liberal but like somehow I was involved in somebody in my life. I can't remember, but like, was like, not all Muslims are bad, mm-hmm. which crucified on the playground Yep, for saying something like that. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, no, I mean, cause we didn't have like, I mean, I grew up with a bunch of fucking rednecks. So yeah. I was like one of the only like five black people right. at the school. Like they, we didn't, at least to my knowledge, we didn't have anybody at least openly practicing being a Muslim kid. God, well, I guess Allah protect that kid if, if there was, but it was bad. Mm-hmm. So you have every single American and many other Western yeah. democratic leaning countries questioning, you know, and fearing. Democratic some, leaning meaning old colonial powers. Yes. Um, like fearing this new otherness that's concentrating on brown people and Muslims. Mm-hmm. This fear and anxiety and uncertainty that they could be attacked and, and, understanding their our collective you know um uh mortality like we're not infinite especially since um it was fairly known at the time that the cia was backing the mujahideen Mm -hmm. um which gave us bin laden Mm -hmm. um and that the it was i think a florida flight school that all of the 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 attackers kind of learned how to fly the plane Right. You know, so it's again going back to like the exacerbation of of homegrown kind of enemies, yeah. enemies from within the border. Mm-hmm. Well, and I mean, bringing it back to kind of like the cinematic nature of it, I mean, even though there wasn't immediately movies made, like it wasn't like the next week there was suddenly a blockbuster movie that was like 9 11 terrorist Terry's, but the way that the filming of the, the news took place was almost like textbook cinema it felt like because like when we bombed baghdad and they showed like george w bush in the middle in the middle yeah, of the operation night. freedom yeah, yeah. Uh, pulling the, the footage they down. had of it yeah. looked like it was exactly out of what i had played in like call of right. duty and games well like that. about that so the gulf war um was the first war to use satellite technology which means essentially it's the first war in that media or satellite technology in the military yeah, in media. Okay. Um, so it was the first time that, like, people around the world 
could essentially get real-time images of war right it was always in the old newsreels or it was like in documentary footage it was all old because of satellite technology you were watching the war as it happened and the military was allowing kind of like its imaging technology to be used by the news as well so you got to see like the infrared and like the heat maps and whatever else that technology is um and so the aesthetics of you know on the ground news team in a war that kind of shaky cam documentary footage americans got used to that as a stepping stone to what we're going to get into immediately next is saving private ryan where steven spielberg is taking from specifically from an older time the documentaries of like uh john ford and john houston where you know a bomb would go off and then the the camera gate would shake and you would see that. And like, you know, the, the cameraman is like ducking for cover and stuff. And that's the battle of Normandy to a T. Um, Saving Private Ryan, which is 99, you know, is a, is a precursor to um, Bourne, which I think is what we're going to get into next. Um, and it's allowable because we have seen that war footage directly live into our um, living rooms because of the Gulf War. Get into next. Is this like a two-hour action movie podcast? This is a, this this is a is, quarantine special. This is a quarantine special. This is so to reiterate. You know, we're tracking the change of action films from the mid '90s to the end of the first decade, the end of the aughts. Um, so now we've reached the aughts. The we've reached the aughts and the incident that caused a reaction in the media landscape in filmmaking. That was a significant mm-hmm. cause and in, in in not the only cause, but a significant cause. Um, wow. If you really put the time in after this and you like get like some, you know, open public access footage of just like the slides and you do like one of those YouTube compilations, <laughs> you are right on your way to like a crash course channel. <laughs> some kids like as referenced from niggas eating YouTube channel, you'll see that uh, Steven Spielberg, <laughs> um, <laughs> Yeah, so I think what's interesting, um, the 60th anniversary of Pearl Harbor mm-hmm. happens, and Michael Bay... In, uh, in December. In December of 2001. You're right. Okay. Michael Bay's... Um, Pearl Harbor. Pearl Harbor comes out that summer. August 2001. August, so right before September 11th. And um, it's interesting how that came out, you know, America being attacked, literally right before. Yeah. Like we had a reminder of a historical event and then, right. and then it happened. Not even 60 days later, you um, have an actual real life. Right. Because it was then in the media compared, right. the 9-11 attack was compared to Pearl Harbor. Pearl Harbor. But what you'll notice is that with Pearl Harbor, it was a very romantic kind of nostalgia filled, you know, sweeping melodramatic epic of mm-hmm. the events. Whereas when we talk about 9-11, because it's so close, you know, when movies start coming out about it in 2005, 2006-ish, it's very serious. It's docu-realism. It's realism that is trying to mimic actual reality, not quote-unquote movie reality, where there's like some right. reference to some sort of physics and logic in the real world. But to your point about not things not coming out immediately, 24 came out in that November, November 2001, hmm. which is Jack, it's a television show. It's, uh, what's Jack, his name? Jack Bauer. 
who's the actor though? Kiefer Sutherland. Kiefer Sutherland is playing, you know, this uh, anti, this counterintelligence, mm-hmm. counter-terrorist intelligence agent. Um, and it is following that real kind of documentary realism. Um, and talk about hyper-normalization. Like 24 was terrifying because it was every 24 hours not like every but like every episode every episode was one hour it's a fucking wednesday for you but guess what jack bauer is saving the whole fucking but that's that's that is what like at any moment that's kind of the hysteria of post 9 11 is that at any moment you know the terrorists can um attack you and we the the intelligence agencies and and whatever we are on the clock 24 hours trying to to save you um my mom loved that shit and now she's a radical republican right I mean, my mom's mm. kind of like a, mm. a mm. blue. Mm. blue I think we're putting the dots together here. Yeah, but um, I see you, Murdoch. Um, yeah. So I mean, especially when we get into like waterboarding and like quote unquote enhanced interrogation and torture, like um, twenty four is is a significant reason as to why all of that was able to happen because we got to see Jack Bauer do that to save us. You know, to so save the fictional us. Accepting, uh, right. accepting a movie reality or, right. a, you know, a story um, reality that applies to... The that is world. very close to the real world that kind of looks and operates like the real world that, you know, in terms of like the documentary style and stuff like that. But this also gets back to, and I think this, this statement colors the rest of the discussion. Um, so I think we should repeat it maybe throughout, but... Because of the cross-media buyback in 96, you have your entertainment media being owned by the same people who are creating your news media who are not in the pocket of and not influencing because they're, I mean, functionally they're from the same class, the political class and the media class. They're working in tandem to maximize profits to save the American empire. Um, So nobody's controlling. It's a symbiotic relationship um, with the government. And the government is providing them um, with, you know, uh, technology to make their big budget movies. The government is giving them access to, you know, certain secret, you know, documents and meetings and things like that. And, and you know, I mean, a lot of the time, especially then, and we're seeing this again um, now, like New York Times, for example, sends uh, its articles to the CIA to, to be edited. Right. So like it, it's getting, you know, approval Our independent media that's supposed to be truthful and hold the, the, the powerful accountable is in, is in bed. It's not even in bed. It's the same fucking person as, you know, the people who are selling us these lies about weapons of mass destruction and things like that. Our news media is selling us the same thing and our entertainment media, which more and more is beginning to look like documentary is selling us the same thing. And so, um, there was a book in the eighties by Noam Chomsky and some other guy and Noam Chomsky is off his rocker and he was never relevant, but, um, he is because, um, he has this, uh, this saying called manufactured consent and it's this kind of interlocking system that not only creates what we can talk about in the quote unquote public square, but how we talk about it. Okay. Right. And it's, which is why everybody is, you know, despite whether they're on the right, whether they're on the left, everybody has the same talking points. You know, nobody has an original idea. Nobody has an idea outside of the realm. Nobody can imagine like, you know, free healthcare, 
you know, it always has to be, well, we can lower Medicaid to like 60 as opposed to 65 and all of that shit. Like that's part of the thing is that your news media, your entertainment media and your politicians are all lockstep with one another. Mm. That is a huge important part of that's going to color the rest of this discussion. Okay. Yeah. And I mean, like, and specifically, his, like, he's expanding on the ideas of, like, yes, we understand that there are social, certain social constructs that go with cultures, but to a finer point, here are the, like, you know, two, two party political system here is like the layout of what you guys are actually imposing upon your following, your audiences, and the people that digest your content. It's like you're maintaining these structures. Right. Which is, mm-hmm. So Noam Chomsky is relevant. He's just, he's like, I just hate, I mean, he got, when you get mollywopped by a French philosopher, a pedophile French philosopher, mollywops. Like, girl, come on, find the note. Uh, and when you say that it's irresponsible to to not vote for for Biden, like shut the fuck up, he's the lesser of two evils. Okay. Anyway, back to the topic at hand. The following statements are not necessarily supported by niggas Eaton, and they are all the opinions and sentences of their own individuals. What's next? Topic? So how all that relates to nine <laughs> eleven, um, and the changing winds is. You have this two-year stopgap where films that were already in production or were going into yeah. production are starting to, um, they're just starting to react yeah. about 9-11. One clear example is the Spider-Man movie that mm-hmm. came out in 2002. Uh, the trailer that came out the year before in 2001 had a very famous scene where a helicopter was stuck uh, between the Twin Towers um, with Spider-Man's web, they removed that out of the trailer, yeah. and it was apparently a big set piece in the film that yeah. had to be replaced. That was a uh, that would have been a great set piece. Like that trailer, mm-hmm. awesome. In 2002, you had the Born Identity that came out with yes. Matt Damon, and that was a spy thriller of a different nature, of a different time, and because it was in close proximity to 9/11. Um, it had a, it, it resonated more, more so. Right. Some partly because of the more um, somber tone of yeah. the material. Uh, we have this not quite anti-hero, but somebody who has power or who's in power who isn't sure how to use that power. Which is a really good metaphor for the Bush years. Right. Um, and it was critiquing the intelligence community, which Rory, you brought this up. Yeah, they, they actually had to, had to peel a lot of yeah. a lot of that content back. The critique was a little harsher, yeah. but because of nine eleven, they had to they, pull they, back. They, on they, yeah, they pulled it back. Um, um, and and some of the things that made that movie stand out was um, aesthetically, uh, it's it's grounded in reality. It's, you know, and then you have this new development in the action sequences, specifically in the fighting you have, um, intensified continuity, intensified continuity. So, um, you won't see the whole, the whole sequence take place in medium shots where you see the hit. So there's, there's the, um, in classical action you have, um, I if it might be called the wine, I forget what it's called. But you see the you see the hit, so like the punch actually going. Mm-hmm. You see the impact, and then you see the reaction. Right. Um, usually in one shot, and a lot of old action, classical action is wide and mediums. This film 
is very close. And in the born identity, the first one, definitely, you still have that. It's just kind of more, you still have the classical kind of action. It's just a little bit more frantic with the camera angles and the documentary style. And it actually does play out in wides and, um, but he's a lot of close-ups as well. Um, and the later, when Paul Greengrass took over it in 2004, starting with the born supremacy, um, the wides get a little tighter um, and the you start to see the development of kind of how the knockoffs are going to use it, like Taken and, and things like that, mm-hmm. where um, you split up the the hit, the impact, and the reaction. So if you look at Taken, if you look at um, even some of the Marvel films, Transformers, Transformers, um, you never actually see the the fist or the foot or whatever it is connecting with the the whoever is getting punched or kicked. Right. And you see right before it connects, and then you see whoever it is retracting their fist, and then it usually cuts to you know them stumbling down and 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 their reaction to the to the hit. So mm-hmm. it, it breaks it up. Mm-hmm. So. Um, that's a huge, that's like probably the biggest significant change is that the classical rules of action are broken for a more, um, some more subjective kind of, you're in the fight with the people. You're not an audience observing the fight. You're, you're feeling the, the chaos and the, the heat and the sweat and the awkwardness of the fight with the characters through the camera movement and the angles. Right. So The Born Identity is the film that pushed that along and it right. was partially because of the timing in the proximity to 9-11. And the images of 9-11, which become very, you know... Ingrained. Ingrained, because, you know, it's one thing if we see in the Gulf War, you know, um, us bombing, you know, whoever the fuck else we're bombing. Right. But when it's us, that's a tragedy. Yeah. You can't do that. No. Nope. You know what I mean? So... How many times have you seen that man jump out of the building? Right. Or like the just the dust, mm-hmm. the debris and the dust and like yeah. all those shadows and you see the the faces, you know. All the but disaster films stole they, the they, sh- the, sh- the well, specific shot is when the tower is actually falling and the cameraman's running and you see all the people running. Yeah, every movie is fucking used that. But um, it isn't until again Steven Spielberg with War of the Worlds that we really start to see destruction movies again yeah like big disaster films like they they were all killed after 9-11 because like you were saying with independence day and with all of them um armageddon Armageddon and things like that you know is that you would see you know washington dc blow up yeah that was one of the targets yeah right you would see new york York. blow up that was one of the targets Mm -hmm. you know uh you'll see la and all of these all of these hot spot tourist like attractions and big cities major cities in america you know you would see blown up and it was fun kiki when it was all you know in the realm of hollywood movie magic but when it becomes real you can't do that which is why it's which is why um War of the Worlds comes first is because it's a metaphor. It's a metaphorical, mm-hmm. right? Um, but he is using the images that you're talking about with the cameraman, you know, and the debris and, and all of that. Right, right. But just to quickly lock up these uh, post 9-11 where they're not quite reacting, but yeah. there there are some shifts. So, you, so our big sequels, um, so we said The Born Identity, then you have The Matrix sequels that come out in 2003 back to back. Yeah. So that's May 2003 and then November 2003. Mm-hmm. You have Lara Croft Tomb Raider, which comes out in 2001, 2001. and 2003. Right. 
Um, I think The Mummy 2 came out in 2000. The Mummy uh, Returns one. came out in 2001. Uh, I think The Scorpion King comes out in 2002. That doesn't count. <laughs> um, Charlie's Angels Full Throttle comes out in 2003. Mm-hmm. Um, Die Another Day, the last name, the last Pierce Brosnan one comes out in 2002. Bad Boys 2 comes in, out in 2003. Yeah. Um, so, so uh, all, Attack of the Clones, 2002. Right. So all of these films are just right after this post time. And some of the ones that do really, really well, like Attack of the Clones, is because it's fantastical, right. Built into, half the shit isn't even real. So there's no parallel, there's no metaphor. Right. So you can just enjoy it, and and typically that's what people wanted. Then by the time you hit 2004, we have enough data to suggest maybe this. Um, oh, 2003 is also mission accomplished. Right. When George Bush, um, he didn't actually say those words, but the 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 banner he, said the it. The banner said yeah. it, and he's like, we we did much one. So you have 2003 where. We feel like we've successfully liberated a country yeah. and we're not even talking. We're using 9-11 as a catch-all yeah. to invade, attack, you know, um, uh, and and cause our own reign of terror yeah. on brown people and mm-hmm. brown countries, wherever the fuck we are. So by 2004, you start getting this data and at least some reflection on what our purpose as a country as a, you know yeah. as the coalition of nations yeah. who are we actually attacking since it's not one very identifiable mm-hmm. you know enemy per se and by 2005 you get critiques like Rory said it starts with war of the worlds where it's a metaphor for what we went through yeah. um and moving past that then Hollywood finally catches up and has some time to fully react. And one of the series that does a reboot to kind of react to what people want mm-hmm. um, or what we're desiring or what has worked is <clears throat> uh, James Bond. So it was rebooted yeah. in 2006 with Daniel Craig. They brought back Martin Campbell from GoldenEye to direct this one, um, Casino Royale. And Casino Royale was very popular for the opening sequence where you know we finally learn how bond got james bond double, got his yeah. first o right or mm-hmm. his double o status um is because it's the second person he killed and it's this fight scene in a bathroom in black and white very realistic rainy hyper realistic yeah. hyper frenetic um and brutal, you know, you have all these pieces in the bathroom just breaking apart, you know, the sound of the punching and the gnashing and the fighting um, is, is all embedded in there. So we feel like we're in the moment and we're in a hyper stylized, hyper real moment with these people. And um, then you have the you also have the addition of film camera systems integrating with digital post-production processes. Yeah. Where. There's a high, so it's it's not just CGI and it's not just simple color correction, but it's like total refinement of whatever look you're going for. The DI, the the DI, yeah. and and everything. Digital after. intermediate, yeah, digital intermediate. Um, so you know, you scan the film and then you can grade it and yeah. fine tune it however you'd mm-hmm. like. You can, you know, instead of just being able to sort of cut out a wire, you know, yeah, of a, you can of do a person, a you can mask and remove everything right. out of a, you know, out of a yeah. scene. The first film to really integrate that fully was um, the Coen Brothers' Oh Brother, We're Out There to get Oh Brother, Where Art Thou in 2000 to get that really kind of classic, you know, look mm-hmm. uh, in terms of the 
color. Right, right. Um, and then it kept pushing, you know, obviously through Star Wars. And James Bond is yeah. one of those movies, Casino Royale is one of those movies where you see the, you know, the benefits of having more control in the post-production process. Yeah. That continues as a trend mm-hmm. throughout the rest of the yeah. decade. Then I think, you know, around 2006, um, we're able to directly address the the, the 9-11 Mm-hmm. Um, with Oliver Stone's 9-11 and with uh, Paul, Paul Greengrass, Greengrass who, who did 93. the Bourne series mm-hmm. with United 93. At least in terms of the Paul Greengrass movie, he, and this is this is something that will later be echoed in 2008, when we get to 2008, he, um, he said that that film is apolitical and he didn't want to politicize it and he wanted to present the facts as they were. But that obviously isn't the case. And because of his style, which is that, you know, docu-realism kind of thing, and because of those statements, people read it as this apolitical, like, he's not, you know. But all of the passengers, all of the American passengers, there's one foreign passenger, a German, right? Because, you know, I guess in the actual flight, there was a German. Um, but we don't have anything from the black box. We, we have really no idea of, you know. United 93 was the flight that um, the passengers... Uh, overtook and the crashed in Pennsylvania. And crashed in Pennsylvania. Yeah. yeah. So um, there really isn't a lot of evidence about what happened and how they actually did it and whatever. But the one German is the one foreigner uh, is a coward and is like, no, no, no. We should just let them take the plane. We should just let them take the plane, right? And every single American is no, we have to stop them. And this is how I can stop them. And this is how I can, you know, this is how I can help and and all of this. So it's a very politicized thing, Mm -hmm. right? Statistically speaking, the American, you know, more Americans would have been, you know, let's not do that. I mean, if you look at the other planes. Yeah, so it's it's a very kind of towing the line between like, I'm presenting reality as it happened, but it's all fictional. And that is running parallel with, you know, weapons of mass destruction that's running parallel with, you know, the uh, effect of um, the efficacy of, you know, uh, enhanced interrogation, mm-hmm. you know, torture right. um, and things like that. But um, I think it's important at least to mention, and, and then we can move on, um, that in 2003, the Abu Ghraib scandal comes out, which is, you know... Um, the abuse of prisoners. The abuse of prisoners, you know, um, sexual humiliation. Right. Um, just going not even not even for any particular reason like you know you might be able to i mean hopefully you specifically not but like an american caught up in this time would be you know torture is fine as long as you get information like they were doing it for fun yeah because it's know? tuesday and they're bored right and those photos are like absolutely disgusting and when you read the accounts of what happened it's even more disgusting um but like I was saying with 24, something that's running parallel to action film is horror. And a lot of the torture porn horror, like Hostel and Saw and things like that, prepare right Americans to see images like Abu Ghraib, hmm. to see the tortured and mangled bodies of what we're doing. Hmm. It's, it's meant to kind of desensitize us to that level of violence. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, because it was really popular, right? Like, I mean, the Saw movies were coming out, the Hostel movies were coming out, all of the knockoffs and everything. Like, yeah. But the body horror was like really yeah. popular during that era. And, and that's the reason, you know? I mean, 
some of those movies came out before Abu Ghraib, you know, some of them came out after Abu Ghraib, but like the social function was to prepare the American audience for the violent kind of images that the they would actual see. ones that were actually happening. Yeah. Mm. Um, so, so that's important to, to, to understand is that like the media, because the media is in the pocket um, of these big corporations who have vested interest in, you know, the, the, extraction the extrication of resources from you know um afghanistan and 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 the in other iraq. in iraq yeah. and you know um i mean we eventually got into pakistan and you know destabilizing all these Iran, other people, syria, syria yeah, you know. we are. Yeah. um so you know for control and resources and all of this you know um all of this stuff is happening with a purpose mm-hmm. um and it becomes business as usual, where right? You don't but it it, it man, it's manifesting in ways that like you don't really think about. Mm-hmm. You know, like who would ever thought that horror film would would be caught up in this? You know, right. action film because we kind of know like that's kind of like okay. Mm-hmm. You watch the Hurt Locker and it's about the war. Like, come on, right? Yeah. So, uh, in terms of business as usual, that's why by the time you get to the Born Ultimatum that Greengrass did right after United ninety three in two thousand seven. Um, you know, you have all of those ideas just totally infused into that movie. The, um, like, the style choices, the close combat, all that stuff. You have the, in terms of ending the the storyline of Jason Bourne, you have him coming to an understanding of what he's a product of and his reaction to that, yeah. which is kind of like a glorified idea of what, you know, regular everyday Americans are thinking. So by the time you get to the end of Bourne Ultimatum, he discovers that he volunteered for this program to turn him into a super weapon to kill, you know, on command essentially. And he was so disgusted by that, that he chose to remove himself from the situation. Mm -hmm. So that's like, it, it allows us to nicely wrap up, you know, that decade, you know, near the end of that decade to say, Oh, right. We didn't realize how ugly and disgusting our practices were. And now we're making the right choice because it wasn't technically all our fault since we couldn't remember. Right. And it was talking about the cultural amnesia we had of the, well, everybody, I mean, everybody is like Trump is the worst president. Like the reason why we have Trump is because of Bush, Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, he started, um, ice Mm-hmm. You know, he started the wars that we're still a part of. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, girl, find the note. But um, yeah, that's the same thing when uh, talking about like J.J. Abrams and then the subsequent um, Mission Impossible movies is that now he is actually a part of the agency. Like he was kind of um, Ethan Hunt, who is Tom Cruise, the main character of the Mission Impossible series. He was, you know, he was burned and then he was kind of like, independent contractor kind of like associated but not really Mm -hmm. and like but now you know you see the cia room you know it's the imf the um well the imf was always a force that was different than the cia and how they work in tandem right all the other and you see all of the slick gadgets and all of the the um the toys and the the, tech and the bureaucracy the the the, what am i trying to the the surveillance you Mm -hmm. know technology and things like that Mm -hmm. And again, it's about, you know, double, triple agents and things like this, but it's one bad apple in the agency. And the one good apple in the agency can, you know, clear it up. Right. You know, so even if we do have, you know, agents or soldiers or whoever that are doing bad, it's just one. Mm -hmm. We'll take care of it. In 2007, if you're reading the temperature in the room, 
nobody really wants to talk about the war or think about 9-11 except for on 9-11. So now you have this new set of movies that are starting to creep up where Hollywood is getting comfortable making other things. Mm -hmm. Some of it and a lot of it will be exploring reboots of things because the temperament now is we want to be entertained again. I think all of this political talk and realizing our country is a giant hypocritical, you know, machine, we don't really want to think about that. So we move to reboots and franchises. And one of the first things to really strike a note, because there had been comic book movies, you know, we talked about Blade. 78, you know, Superman. Right. But, um, you know, you have the inception of this juggernaut that, and you had the Spider-Man films throughout that whole decade. But in 2008, you had Paramount producing a film with, Marvel Entertainment called Iron Man with yeah. Robert Downey Jr. And it was different enough at the time mm-hmm. because it was taking a comic book property, a uh, lesser known to the broad audience, you know, uh, to a lesser known character. Wasn't Superman, Spider-Man or Batman. Yeah, it wasn't Superman, Spider-Man or Batman. So uh, they took that, elevated it to a live action role and grounded it in reality more so than... Um, than spider-man so it's Mm -hmm. not as the colors aren't the colors are pretty punchy and everything but there's a little bit more of a somber tone connected to the political you know reality of the world especially the beginning when he's in the opening scene yes tony tony stark is an arms dealer stark industries it doesn't matter how powerful you are in the world like the i mean mean, you can get abducted by terrorists because of your double dealings and the way you're entangled with terrorism right it's reality in the world well terrorism caused him to become iron man right you know um because of the success of that film marvel was able to leverage that success to build a partnership to start creating films that were populated with a lot of their characters from their comic book archives which is now known as the you know marvel Marvel cinematic Cinematic universe Universe, but that was the first step to kind of developing that i want to Talk about um, Aeon Flux, mm-hmm. which is 2005, Charlize Theron, um, and it's an MTV property, um, f- great fucking cartoon in the 90s. I love Aeon Flux. When I was watching that again, you know, I mean, Aeon Flux itself was kind of like, you could definitely see how the cartoon in the 90s was influencing The Matrix. You know, that mix where it gets muddled because like there are very clear references to the actual Matrix, you know. Um, so it's still like a, a fall off of the matrix. But what was interesting is that it's about the Patriot Act. Mm. It's about for your safety, we have to monitor everything that you do. And Aeon Flux is a part of a radical kind of group that is trying to overrule or overtake that system so that like people can live free and you know, all of all of this stuff where they're no longer surveilled. But it ends up that she gets in bed with the architect of that system right so like she the rebel is now falling in line with the person who created this architecture the surveillance state which is a metaphor very thinly veiled metaphor for the patriot act ultimately what the message of the movie is is when the patriot act is done right when we no longer need this because we've won the war on terror we'll be the good guys and we'll take it down Mm. right because that's what trevor goodchild the architect of it the dictator of of the movie does is that like oh we found a cure for, you know, our apocalypse, so we don't need this anymore. We can we can destroy it. 
which is a very interesting parallel to um, another film that came out in 2008, which is The Dark Knight, mm-hmm. um, which is the second movie in Nolan's Batman trilogy. Um, the first in 05, which is when Aeon Flux came out, coincidentally, um, called Batman Begins. And the messaging in The Dark Knight is all the fuck over the place. It is crazy. Like that is a, if Freud could get in the mind of a neocon, he would have a field day with Dark Knight. You have this villain who presents himself as, you know, chaos and no real reason, which is a lot of people's anxieties. Like, why are they attacking us? There's no real reason for them to attack us. You know, you have these international kind of hits around the world in Paris and Madrid, London, Madrid, and, and things like that. Um, all over the Western colonial powers, uh, random, no sense of time or, you know, rhyme or reason for when or why these would happen. So that's your villain. And in parallel with Aeon Flux, Batman has to use, you know, uh, the equivalent of sonar using people's smart devices to be able to track and survey everybody in Gotham to find where the Joker is. Lucius Fox, played by Morgan Freeman, is so disgusted by that because he's supposed to be the one who's operating it to find um, to find the Joker. He's so disgusted by that, but Batman gives him the codes to to break it up, mm-hmm. right? To destroy that technology. And so again, it's this you know, when this is all over, we won't need this technology anymore, so we'll stop surveying you, mm-hmm. which is obviously the dumbest fucking message because you know. Um, this is when this is the year 08 is the year that Obama is elected and Obama exacerbates the surveillance state. And he goes after, you know, people who are whistleblowing how, you know, deeply entrenched everything is and and just how bad the NSA is. Um, Edward Snowden comes to mind. Um, And and then you have, you know, this is being exacerbated even further under Trump. And so it's like very clearly, you know, but it's used to placate. Mm. That message is used to placate Americans' fear over the Patriot Act. In the end, it's plain to like, no matter how fucked up the system is, no matter yeah. what tools we manage to think of, don't worry. Even if we fuck up, we will. American idealism, Americanism, like right. will will succeed, and the the good things will happen. Right, like, you'll get your happen. freedoms back. We just need this yeah. for security purposes. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, but I think in terms of uh, talking about Batman as a franchise holistically, starting with, you know, Tim Burton's 89 Batman, and then especially talking about the Joel Schumacher Batman, that shit, that is camp. That is gay rights. Ryan, is that his name? Ryan O'Neill, who plays Robin in Batman and Robin with them fucking George Clooney nipples and that fucking fucking ass. A lot of gays were born because of Batman and Robin. So, you know, you have this really comical in the mid-90s. You have this really comical, over-the-top, schlocky, slapstick kind of Batman. And then the reboot is a very Hollywood realism, clearly shot in a studio, but it's following the rules of physics with Batman Begins in 05. But in 08, it's adopting a lot more of that realistic tone that has become very popular because of the aftermath of... 9-11 and, and, you know, the Born, uh, the Born series and, and things like that. So we have two more films to talk about, 08 and 10. 08 being Catherine Bigelow's history-making film, Hurt Locker, which is a war film. Jeremy Renner is a bomb diffuser. I haven't seen this movie. I refuse to watch this movie again. So he could be in Iraq. He can be in Afghanistan. He could be wherever the fuck in the Middle East. Um, but Mark Bull, who wrote the screenplay used you know 
in his research, he was talking to, you know, peop, uh, soldiers, you know, over there and their experiences. And it's kind of an aggregate of their experiences. Catherine Bigelow is involved, who has this really weird career where like in the 80s, she was doing like these horror vampire movies, vampire movies and then she does Point Break with Keanu Reeves. Right. Um, nice film. Right, she she does Strange Days with Angela Bassett and Ralph Fiennes. Drama, yeah, she does. She does shit. the Harrison Ford vehicle K nineteen window Widowmaker, Widow like really fucking weird. Man, yeah, really fucking weird career. But you know, all of those films are like so drastically different. But in two thousand and eight, and innovative in in many ways. You know, um, Strange Days is the Matrix is um, VR. Like you know, it's it's a whole yeah. it's. Such a weird, moody thing. It's the version of The Matrix that would have made it to the sci-fi channel. Right. But in 08, she is very much embedded in the legacy of the Gulf War news footage through Saving Private Ryan, through Jason Bourne and all of these. Like very much in that this is realistic. This is based on a true story. This is, you know, you're watching a documentary mm-hmm. or it feels like you're watching a documentary. And it's interesting that she, it's history making in the fact that she um, is the first director to win, it's the first female director to win best director at the Oscars. What did it beat out? It beat out her ex-husband's James Cameron's avatar, which is, People try to like do this between like it's the ex-wife versus the evil husband. They right. do it between like the little indie that could yeah. versus this big bloated action, you know, blockbuster thing. Sure. But what it really is, is that as support for the war was dwindling, right, you have these two films, which are one is pro-war and right. one is why are we over there in the these place. indigenous people's land trying Stealing to steal their, their unobtainium, their, their resources. Yeah. The Native so Americans the, were right. Right. And it's that that's literally what the, the thing boils down to. So like her win is really a win for the CIA because she goes on to wow, really work like with that. the CIA with Zero Dark Thirty, mm. which is about the, the Obama the, the Osama, really, Osama bin really Laden like piece. Wow. Um, I really like that because I've always loved that about her. Like I've never seen her locker but i've always loved him like yeah she you know i bought into the whole she got revenge on him through but i'm right. like you know what actually no it's just the the government war and money right like that's fuck, that's the, the reason why it was shit. made and that's the reason why it won the the oscars because what the other movie that was like we shouldn't be over there it, like it's stupid and then we come to the finale the end of the decade christopher nolan Inception. Inception. Which I think we didn't start with the Matrix, but we were kind of leading up to the Matrix. But I think in terms of 99, which is the year before the new millennium, and 2010, which is the year after the the aughts, you have these really physics-bending action films, these so-called smart intellectual action films about... Uh, one is about like simulation and simulacra, what is real, what is reality. Well, I guess they're both about that. But Inception being more about dreams and Freud and the other guy who was doing dreams, I forget his name. What are your thoughts on Inception, Temi? Uh, my thoughts now or my thoughts then? Both. Okay, my thoughts then were, wow, this is going to be the most fantastic movie ever because Nolan has a particular way of rolling out his films, and usually his teasers are very intriguing. That's Not intriguing. They are S-tier. The trailer alone, the womp womp, you know. Hans Zimmer was in his fucking bag. He really was. 
And I mean, we roasted that for the rest of the decade, but that yeah. shit, that shit was hard, man. Mm-hmm. We're even going to put it in here. Watch, watch the silence. It seemed cool. I remember walking to the movie theater so fucking excited, telling my friends, shut the fuck up. I'm about to get knowledge. And then be like, wow, it's amazing. Right. And it's like, what's it about? It doesn't matter. It was amazing. And watching it or part of it with you last week, um, yeah, I've seen it in between. But, yeah. you know, it's it's another movie. And right. uh, Watch Paprika by Satoshi Kon 2006 Oh, yeah, instead. that's it. That's it. It is, it is Paprika. <laughs> it is. <laughs> Just watch Paprika. Um, but it's, it's interesting because I think it, it's more of a testament about how his films work, which is they are a very good spectacle when you watch it the first time. Yeah. And the second time, you you know where the turns are so there's there's no way to like trick yourself to not see them again but the turns are like it's not even like because you know some mysteries you watch and like you know the turn is coming i think that's the resonance of like no i am your father with darth vader like every it's such a huge cultural moment that everybody knows it but like it still punches you yeah you know i mean i haven't seen empire strikes back in forever but you know it's still you know you still see the kids watching it and it's just like wow but he manufactures them in such a way that they're only good for like it's so like he's so taught in his twisting of the narrative and the plot that Mm -hmm. it's like there's no point of watching this again except for to see where the twists right because once you see that foreshadowing and you think about oh such a good turn then you actually watch it again and you're like oh this see yeah for me when i first saw it like I I mean I loved all of the the soundtrack and like everything mind bending and twisting about it because like also everyone around me was like whoa and I was like yeah. I hadn't done a lot of acid yet so you know I was like <laughs> yeah I know right this is yeah. what acid is probably like right. yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you can bend and acid came through so much harder right harder oh, than that absolutely um, oh yeah but I haven't taken acid but I know but now and to like why I'm interested with in that question you asked of like what was then what is it now now when I've seen I've seen it a couple times since I like. Yes, his filmmaking, the style of his filmmaking is great, but... I never said that. You're looking you know, at me like he, I said he, that. He, I never said that. Well, I mean, it is. It's interesting. I can see how it was like mind-bending, but really the storyline and what you have to look at, for me, it just feels like, wow, this is the A-team. This is just the A-team with different actors and they're in someone's <laughs> mind. No, no. They did an A-team reboot and yeah. that was fun. <laughs> with but Liam Neeson. This was A-team for the intellectuals, the, the, um, the pseudo intellectuals. But it's not even intellectual. Like, So the thing, yeah. um, when I watched I was hyped for that. Because I, I, I own at least 5% of The Dark Knight's theatrical revenue. That is me. I watched that in IMAX. I watched that in the little shake em sheets. Like, I love the fuck out of that movie. And for those doing the math at home, Rory is a, apparently worth about like $5 million. Absolutely. But, and I was so hyped for that movie. And this was around the time that I was really into like international cinema. And so, you know, I had seen Tarkovsky's Mirror and I had seen like some of the Sergei Parajanov movies. I had seen Daughters of the Dut. Like, so I had seen all of these, like, if they're not actually about dreams, you know, they're dreamlike, you know, last year at Marion Bab. And so I'm like, this is gonna be, this is gonna be like some physics to find. Like this, this is gonna be some shit. You know what I mean? Like this is going to be, and it's a fucking crossword puzzle. It's a maze. Mm. There's this is about dreams. And the the best you can come up with is a train running down the street. But I think um, in terms of like how it relates, I think it goes back to, you know, the questions of reality after we come out of this decade where we were lied to about weapons of mass destruction where you see all of these corruption scandals and things like that, it's kind of like, um, 
you know, you see the people using drugs as dreams to escape from reality in the film. Um, you have we to question your reality. So yeah, um, watch Paprika by Satoshi Kon. So what have we learned? Why don't you start? What I learned is um, trying to watch a bunch of movies in a category that is more diverse than you initially thought uh, is very difficult and also very rewarding. I was surprised by a lot of the picks. You know, we didn't talk about all the picks, but I was surprised about a lot of the picks. And I was surprised how rapidly the aesthetic change was to filmmaking, as well as the impact of, you know, digitalization of the post-production process and then leading into digitalization of the image acquisition process. Right. Um, Um, I learned the government some sneaky shit. Well, those are some sneaky niggas. Yeah. So I think um, my biggest takeaway is how in 96, we start to see um, all of the media conglomerates start to consolidate. I think in the 80s, we had maybe like 30 some odd studios. And then I I can't remember how it how it goes in like the 2000s. But essentially now it's like four, maybe Mm -hmm. Um, all of those are except for Disney. All of those are owned by like other yeah you know conglomerates but yeah i think like there's a lot of sameness and like a flattening of not necessarily like you know racial and gender and whatever diversity but um everything is being put into place to be the same so that when we get into the next decade especially with the marvel cinematic universe there's virtually no difference between any movies that you see right which conveniently is the topic of our next next deep dive is we're going to continue our talk about action and how the next decade, 2010 to 2000... Now. Now, <laughs> 2020. Well, we don't have much to go on except for um, the Harlequin movie. That's true. Birds of Fred, that's the only movie that's come out this year. What else has come out? That's the last one. Right. So, uh. from from Inception to Birds of Prey. We would have had a couple picks, but... Yeah. Rona. Um, so, yeah. Uh, we'll follow this up on the next one. Um, the next deep dive, which will be episode eight. In the meantime, share this podcast and uh, hit us up on Instagram or on Twitter and tell us some of your favorite movies from the mid-90s to the aughts. Action. Yeah. In fact, I think we'll list all the ones that we did watch. Yeah, well. we can do like a, a little watch list for this episode. Yeah. Um, okay. So, uh, Jarrell, you got our wrap up? Niggas eating letterbox. Yeah, my wrap up is like I've learned so much about the movies that I took for granted, specifically um, like all of the war movies and kind of looking back and saying like, wow, I watched the shit out of all of those war movies. And my homeschooled ass was like, wow, this is dumb terrorists. Uh, but that's the point. Like, that's what they want you to do. Yeah. I mean, I didn't end up joining any kind of military service, mm-hmm. but my brother did. And he plays the shit out of Call of Duty and games like that. So that's another conversation about how Call of Duty that is. That motherfucker dedicated five for, years. Yeah. I've been playing it. Listen, yeah. I got my adrenaline up. I'm oh, like, the yeah. first time he booted that game up, he's like, oh, you're going to kill these nerds. And I was like, yeah. Tell me it's a third grader. And I went back to 2005, <laughs> like, immediately. But yeah, my, um, my, my feelings towards uh, propaganda have like really evolved uh, since college, and this is kind of just more validation to like kind of watch what you endorse and even see, and um, it's like look at how film and cinematography and ooh, that's a really pretty shot, but it, in the end, it's also highly manipulative. 
Um, and it's not culturally specific. Like, I mean, people in China see Chinese propaganda via films. Everyone does everywhere. But Oh, yeah. I mean, propaganda isn't a bad term. Everybody does propaganda. Black Lives Matter is a propaganda term. Yeah. You know, Me Too is a propaganda term. Like, it's yeah. just, that's how you, you know, recruit people. It's just like, what to what end are you trying to recruit Yeah, them? but everybody in modern day always like references like Goebbels and, and Hitler. And they're like, look at the way like propaganda and film was used. Yeah. But it's like, no, nah, like, take a look at your own shit. Like, even the fucking Fast and Furious movies somehow ended up intertwining themselves with the military industrial complex. To yeah, they were driving did. fucking Corvettes down like mm-hmm. fucking mountain shooting at like Blackhawks. This is not realistic, but what if? Oh, we didn't even talk about Blackhawk now. <laughs> God <laughs> that's damn. Fine. That's fine. Um, no, but yeah, the, the military has been involved um, and the intelligence agency has been involved since before World War II. Like even before the CIA existed, when it was the Office of War Information mm-hmm. in World War II, there was a concerted campaign because of the uh, disaffected um, black soldiers of World War One who were telling their sons um, or their brothers and niece, uh, nephews and whoever else, don't join up because, you know, when we came back, we were lynched. Yeah. You know? Um, so there's a concerted effort where, you know, they produce stuff like the Negro soldier, uh, with the Office of War Information and um, Alfred Hitchcock, who is, you know, everybody's auteur, he famously, you know, doesn't, he shoots his movies in a way that can only be cut together in a specific way. Like he has such control over his films. They forced him to add a black person to a uh, lifeboat, you know, because I mean, what are you little niggas gonna do? Like if Hitler wins, you think we're bad. <laughs> so that's it for our extended episode. Uh, make sure to like and subscribe, share with your friends, uh, drop us a line on Instagram at niggas underscore Eaton and on Twitter at Eaton underscore niggas. <laughs> with the I and niggas being asterisked. Yeah, we're just going to keep that. Um, you can find me, uh, Temi, at Instagram at itzebra11 and on Twitter at itzebra. Rory, where can we find you? You can find me on Twitter at rem underscore blues, R-E-M underscore B-L-U-E-S. And on Instagram, you can find me, not using it, at uh, rem blues. All right. What about you, Jarrell? Uh, you can find me at no name James underscore on Instagram and Twitter. You can find me at Jarrell James. Goodbye.